Father, we thank you so much for your grace this evening. Uh, we thank you that we get to come to your word and hear from you. Uh, these are not my words, but your words. And so, Father, I pray for grace, uh, especially for myself and even the high schoolers and the staff here, that we would not be taking your word for granted, that we would take it seriously, and that you would give us grace to apprehend your word, and not just apprehend it, but to really uh, think through and for it to challenge us and for it to transform us from the inside out. And so, Father, we, we only know that you can only do that, and so we seek your help now. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Good evening, everyone. Um, okay, so it's been a while since I preached, so uh, I'm a little rusty. Uh, but we're back in Jonah. Um, but if you guys have been tracking since the start of Jonah, uh, you'll remember that the book of Jonah is about God and his radical pursuit of his lost people. Okay? It is about God's relentless pursuit of his wayward people, and what we've seen is that God will stop at nothing. He will throw storms at you. He will cause ships to break. He will crash into our distance. Uh, he will cause the things that you trust in to completely unravel. And in Jonah chapter 2, uh, we saw that God will even send you to the bottom of the ocean to show that life, apart from him, isn't really life at all. God will stop at nothing to pursue his rebellious, his rebellious people. And in this chapter, in Jonah chapter 3, we see God's pursuit continuing. And so if you guys have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. And this is what God says in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is God's word. You know, one of my favorite movies is, uh, is Dumb and Dumber. Okay. You guys familiar with that movie, Dumb and Dumber? Yeah? Yes or no? Okay. It's probably like too old for you guys. Like, it came out like, like 1999, 2001, two. How many of you guys were born after 2000? How about, how, about, how about before? How many before 2000? Okay, so all the staff. Okay, that's crazy. Wow, amazing. All right. Well, anyway, uh, dumb and dumber. Um, but one of my favorite scenes in that movie is actually near its end, okay? Um, and I don't even care if I spoil it because the movie's been like out for so long, okay? Um, dumb and Dumber begins with Jim's uh, Jim, Jim Carrey's character, Lloyd. Uh, he is a limo driver. And the movie starts with him taking a woman to the airport, okay? And in the 20 minutes that they spend together in a car ride to the airport, Lloyd actually falls in love with her, you know? It's ridiculous. Uh, I love it. Um, and so after he drops her off at the airport, he is completely distraught that he'll never be able to see her again, okay? Uh, until he sees her leaving a briefcase in the airport, not knowing that it is, it is actually a briefcase containing ransom money for her kidnapped husband, Okay? So you can kind of, you know, figure out where this is going. So not knowing that it was a brief, briefcase for her husband's kidnappers, Lloyd retrieves the briefcase full of money. And the whole movie is about Lloyd and his friend, Harry, tracking down this lady so that they can give this briefcase back to uh, this lady um, and tell, how, tell her how he really feels about her. And so they go on a countrywide road trip um, and they find her in Aspen, Colorado, of all places. I don't have the time to tell you guys like how they get there, but it's hilarious. Um, and then so with all of his, you know, feelings pent up, he confesses that he is in love with her, even though she has a husband, even though he's only met her and talked with her for like 20 minutes. Um, and so he asks her, um, what, are the chances, what are the chances of us getting together? What are the chances of us getting together? And, uh, and she replies, not, not good, not good. And he says, you mean not good like, like one out of a hundred? And she replies, I mean like, you know, one out of a million. And he pauses and he says, so you're telling me that there's a chance? You know, one in a million, okay? And he says, so you're telling me that there's a chance? Uh, and so obviously, you know, movie Dumb and Dumber, okay, piece the two together. And so my question is, you know, what does this have to do with our message for this evening? 
Um, when, you, when you look at all the different characters in this chapter, okay, whether it's Jonah or the Ninevites, you come to realize that these people are people who really and rightfully deserve God's judgment. If you remember back in the first chapter, Jonah defied God's call and ran from him without even thinking twice. Jonah should have, or God, what, what God should have really done is he should have let Jonah drown at the bottom of the ocean. If you remember who the Ninevites were, these were people who were the worst of the worst. Okay? They skinned people alive. They impaled people on spears. They pillaged cities and towns. Uh, their wickedness could not have been overstated. God should have just let them perish without any notice. But Jonah and Nineveh aren't merely historical figures for us to look at. They're not merely examples of what not to do, of what a good Christian is not supposed to do. We are Jonah, and we are Nineveh. How many times have we run from God this past week? How many times and in what ways have we defied God's call on our lives today? Now, how are we like Nineveh? You know, we didn't murder or kill anyone. But what's interesting here is that Jesus actually ups the stakes and says that anyone who is angry with his or her neighbor has already committed murder in his or her own, in his or her own heart. God never should have sent Jesus to die for us. And he should have just left us, but he didn't. God should have drowned Jonah. God should have crushed the Ninevites. And God should have damned all of us. But he didn't. And as we take a look at Jonah chapter 3, we come to realize that this is the God of second chances, of third chances, fourths, fifths, tenths. That God allows Jonah to even preach again is sheer grace. That God even allows Nineveh 40 days to repent is sheer grace. That God saves us is sheer grace. With God, there are as many chances as there are failures. And tonight, we're going to see how far, just how far, God's compassion runs for people who do not deserve it. And so a question I want to ask us, and I want, to, I want us to be thinking about as we even listen through this message, is how far, how far does God's compassion run for people who don't deserve his compassion? How far does God's compassion run for people who don't deserve his compassion? How far does God's compassion run for people who don't deserve his compassion? And what we really see is, um, first, a compassionate restoration. Second, a compassionate revival. And third, a compassionate mercy. And the first is a compassionate restoration. A compassionate restoration. Take a look again at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, stop there. Now, if you're paying attention to this one verse, you should be reminded that this actually isn't the first time God calls Jonah. The verse says, the second time. You know, as we read the opening verses of Jonah chapter 3, the, the author is actually harking us back to the opening lines of this book. Turn really quickly back to chapter 1, verse 1. In verse 1 it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, It is not by coincidence that chapter 3, verse 1, and, Jonah, and chapter 1, verse 1 are almost identical in word structure. There should be a sense of deja vu as we hear these words again. In chapter 3, verse 1, the plot rewinds and plays again. Now, what is the point of the author? What is, he trying to, what is he trying to do here? Why does the word of the Lord come to Jonah a second time? Well, it's because Jonah didn't even think twice to ignore him the first time. It wasn't as, even as if Jonah was covert in trying to run from God. Jonah's disobedience was completely blatant. And so the question is, if Jonah's disobedient was, disobedience was so blatant, why would God ever use a man like Jonah ever again? Let me put it another way. Would you ever follow a man who blatantly runs from God? Would you ever trust this guy to be your pastor? Would you ever trust the leadership of a man who defies God's call on his life and would rather see wicked people perish than to live? Would you follow a, a pastor like that? Probably not. I would never let someone like this serve into the youth ministry. And yet the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, saying, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. You know, that's crazy. God could have used a donkey to deliver this message as he has done in the past. He could have employed thousands of angels to deliver his message as he has done in the past. He could have used any prophet to deliver this message as he has done in the past. He could have used anyone. But why Jonah? And why a second time? It's because God isn't done with Jonah 
and neither is he done with you. In his compassion, God is not done with you. And I think all of us would agree that for the Christian and non-Christian, there is no sin so great that the blood of Jesus cannot cover. We can never sin ourselves outside of God's hands. But to be able to be used by God ever again? How can God ever use someone like Jonah ever again? Someone like you and me who have failed him time and time and time and time again. If we were to ask God, so you're telling me there's a chance, according to this verse, God's answer is yes. There is a chance. And not just once or twice, but many. God has ever only used flawed people to accomplish his flawless purposes. You will fail. As a Christian or even non-Christian, you will fail. Maybe some of us think that our love for Jesus is strong enough. Our resolve to fight our sin or our temptation is uneclipsed. Our willpower to be a nicer person cannot be stronger. Our commitments that we've made in small groups are still fresh in our memories. And so maybe you've made the bold promise. Maybe you've, um, maybe you've said, I'll never blow up at my parents ever again. I'll never sin in this way ever again. I'm done with this lust. I'm finished with seeking the approval of others. I'll never be this irresponsible again. I'll never fall asleep during a sermon again. I'll never skip a Friday night again. I'll never compete with others again. I'll never make fun of others again. I'll never point the finger at others again. But contrary to all of your well-intentioned promises, you break them. And you start thinking to yourself, my life is nothing but a series of repeated failures followed by shallow expressions of repentance and renewed promises only to end in failure again. Maybe some of you guys are thinking, I'm just a phony and a mess up. How can I ever be used by the living God ever again? How can God ever take me seriously ever again? And if that is you today, if that is you today, I have some good news for you. What God wants you to know through the story of this failed but restored prophet is that for every failure, God meets you with a renewal, a restoration, and a second chance. That is the hope for every single failed Christian, you and me. God spoke, you ran, and he's not giving up. You will fail. Christian, you will fail. And anyone who thinks that they won't fail is completely deluded. Completely deluded. There's only one hero in the Bible. It certainly isn't Jonah, and it for sure is not you. The point isn't how strong of a commitment or promise that you can make to God. It's how strong of a commitment God has made to you and how he will keep that promise. And what we see in the Bible is that God does not break his promises. The point isn't the greatness of your faith to God or your commitment to God or what you can do for God. God does not break his promises. Beloved, have you failed Jesus again? Have you failed Jesus this morning, this afternoon, maybe even 10 minutes ago, in your heart of hearts? Have you failed Jesus again? Are you in need of restoration today? And what we see here in, this, in just these two short verses is that no one is too far gone. If we see Jonah running from God and God calling him a second time, no one is too far gone. No one is beyond God's comprehensive and gracious reach. And so I implore you, if, the, if this is you today, come to the God, the compassionate God, who will meet every failure of yours with a fresh start every single time. A compassionate restoration. Secondly, a compassionate revival. A compassionate revival. Take a look at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So having been restored, Jonah finally obeys God, and he goes to Jonah, and he goes to Nineveh. Now when we read a passage like this, we tend to imagine, you know, this, this street evangelist, you know, who just casually strolls into the middle of a city, you know, and he holds up a sign that says, you know, down with Nineveh, or like, you know, you're going to hell or something, um, and he suddenly begins preaching. But the problem is that we've already interpreted this story with some of our cultural assumptions, which would have been completely foreign to the ancient original audience. And I want you guys to, um, to actually take a look at your footnotes at the end of verse 3. 
Um, at the end of verse 3, the second footnote, it says, um, for three days journey in breadth, it says, um, or a visit was a three days journey. Now, what does that even mean? Okay, that's kind of ambiguous. Uh, does it mean that the, the city was so large that it would take three days to travel to the center of the city? Or does it mean that from where Jonah was at that time, that it would take three days to get to Nineveh? Uh, I would actually argue that it was an Assyrian custom that a visit to an important city like Nineveh required three days. The first day was to formally announce your visit to the city, uh, to the city officials, to the king, and to the nobles, which we see here. The second day was to describe why exactly you were visiting. And the third day was your departure. Okay, so three days. So that's how I take it. And the idea is that you can just waltz your way into the capital of this political empire and regime. Okay, these guys had walls that surrounded this city. Okay. And so if you take a look at verse 4, it says that Jonah only went a day's journey, meaning that he only went through the city to formally announce his visit. So look at verse 4. It says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, if the author of this passage goes so far to tell us that Nineveh was a three days journey, and he only tells us that Jonah only went a day's journey, what was he trying to communicate? Do you guys, do you guys see what is, what, what, what's, what's going on here? Okay. Why does the author of Jonah tell us that, he want, that a, a, trip to, uh, or, uh, you know, a trip to a city like Nineveh would take three days, but it only talks about one day? Why is that? Well, take a look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The Ninevites' response to Jonah's message was so comprehensive, or it was so total, that Jonah didn't need to preach the rest of the days. That's the point. The point is that Jonah didn't need all the three days because the Ninevites actually beat him to it. Literally all of Nineveh repented. Take a look at verses 6 to 9. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast, okay, not just human beings, but animals as well, be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And so actually, if you look at verse 5, verse 5 is actually the conclusion of what happens in verses 6 to 9. Okay, so the order is actually a little reversed. Okay, so the idea is that on the first day, okay, don't lose, don't lose me here, okay? Just follow along, okay? The, first, the idea is that on the first day, Jonah most likely preached to the king. And the king was so responsive to God's word that he, ha he had told the whole city to repent from man, from woman, to animal, to cow. That's the reason why the author of Jonah only tells us that Jonah went on a day's journey. It's because Jonah's job was done on the first day, even though technically it was three days for him to preach. That was how crazy responsive they were to the word of God. And I think one of the reasons why we don't see a revival like this today, a repentance, a citywide repentance like this today, there are a lot of reasons, but I think one of the reasons, at least in this text that I see, is that today, we are not responding appropriately to the Word of God. We are not responding appropriately to the Word of God. At the heart of the Ninevites and their king's repentance, any and every hint of spiritual pretense was stripped and removed. They understood that there was a one in a million chance that God would save them, even though the odds were against them. They didn't assume that God would save them. In fact, they assumed that God would actually judge them if they didn't call on him in those 40 days. The king had no idea whether God would turn from his anger or not. But from young and old, from the greatest to the smallest, from the king to the peasants, from animal to man, not one of them believed that they deserved God's mercy and grace. Did you catch that? Every single one of them acted as if God's hand of judgment was upon them. Their hearts were softened to the realization that at the cusp of God's judgment, they were all in the same boat. It didn't matter if you were the king. It didn't matter if you were the peasant. It didn't matter if you were young. It didn't matter if you were old. None of them measure themselves to each other. They all measure themselves to God. 
All of Nineveh heard Jonah's warning and they said, so you're telling me, as if Lloyd was telling this lady, so you're telling me that there is a chance. All of Nineveh is Lloyd. All of Nineveh is Lloyd. And on the other hand, you know, I think, I think we approach God with so much spiritual pretense. I really think that we approach God with so much spiritual pretension. We go to church, and if the preacher tells us something that we already, we already know, we tell ourselves that we've wasted our time, and we tune out. We sit on a Friday night or on a Sunday morning to hear from God, but we expect so little of God's power to transform us. We know a lot about the Bible, and we have a lot of knowledge, and yet so little of it carries over to how we even live our lives. We live our lives as if God's truth isn't even true at all. We expect others to treat us with maturity, but we act with so much immaturity. We want others to think that we're kind people, but we don't act kind at all. And you know, this kind of behavior shouldn't surprise us. We see it in the life of Jonah, and we see it also in the life of Israel. The more privilege Israel had, the more unresponsive Israel was to God. Jesus' disciples had the same problem. All the disciples breathed the same air as Jesus. They saw Jesus. They reveled in what he had done for them. They reveled in their status as his disciples. They were with Jesus. They ate with him. They traveled with him. They casted out demons in his name. And yet, while they were the ones who were most familiar with Jesus, they were also, at the same time, the most unresponsive to him. And I think that's a challenge for all of us today. You can even argue that we actually have more privilege than the disciples because we sit on the other side of the cross where Jesus actually did die for sinners. We have more knowledge and more truth than even these disciples. And yet, how do we respond to this Jesus? Let this passage serve as a warning that greater privilege does not mean less responsibility. Greater privilege does not mean less responsibility. Greater privilege and more knowledge actually requires more responsibility. You know, I think a lot of us think that because we know God will forgive us and is patient with us, a lot of us ask ourselves, how much actually can I get away with my sin this week? How close can I get to the fire? And I think there's also some of us on the other side who think that maybe we've fallen out of God's good graces this past week. So maybe we'll serve a little more. Maybe we'll, um, we'll, be, we'll be a bit more kinder to this person this week. Maybe I'll spend a minute longer in prayer in order to get back into God's good graces. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? It's because we are a spiritually duplicitous people. We are two-faced. And we act with so much self-entitlement. So much self-entitlement. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Verse 9, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the other who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, this, this, this Pharisee, he lists all the things that he did well while missing the most important piece of the puzzle. So many of us assume God's grace and mercy because we tell ourselves that we pray. Maybe we fast. Maybe we read our Bibles. We serve the church. Uh, we love the book of Romans. And who doesn't love the book of Romans? We listen to a lot of sermons. We don't cuss like unlike our unbelieving friends or classmates. We don't make fun of others like so many other people do. We are more self-sacrificing. We are more disciplined. And the challenge here is that, you know, I think all of you guys, I think you guys are pretty familiar with this, with this parable. Most of us know this parable. And while most of us know the right answer, like most of us know that we should be like the tax collector to beat our chest and to call ourselves the worst sinner of all. But in reality, I think so many of us live like this Pharisee. 
We rely on our mere outward obedience, our recent religious performance, our relative infrequency of conscious, willful disobedience as the barometer of our relationship with God. And what God will tell you is that it's not enough. That stuff, it's not enough. Why? It's because that is not what God looks at. It's not what God looks at. What God sees and accepts, even, isn't even the sackcloth and fasting or how much devotion you have for him, but how you turn from your evil ways. What God sees isn't how much or little you do X, Y, and Z. You know, when I was a college student, um, I used to really pray long prayers, which doesn't surprise us because I preach long sermons. Um, But I would pray really long prayers before meals with friends, okay? Um, And they were verbose, uh, they were long, and they were pretentious. And after I had finished praying, one of my friends told me, he said, dude, like you didn't even thank God for the food. Like, do you think like God is pleased with your like three minute sermon or with your three minute prayer? And I was shocked because I realized that I was using my Christianity, this prayer, as a way to impress others. Not because I actually loved God, not because I actually loved the food that he provided on the table, but because I loved myself. That is the height of spiritual pretension when we will serve in a ministry like this youth group, as if we deserve to serve, we will not cuss, we will act so well-behaved, we will use the name of God, not because we love him or others, but because we love ourselves. We will even use God to serve our own ends. That is how duplicitous and two-faced we are. God is not impressed by yours or my spiritual pretension. God, again, looks at the heart And what does God see? If you take a look at the beginning of verse 6, back in Jonah chapter 3, sorry, should have asked you guys to put a finger back there. But in Jonah chapter 3, verse 6, if you take a look at the beginning of verse 6, it says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. The word for reached there in verse 6 is actually the same word that's used for struck or touched. In other words, the word of God physically struck and touched this king's heart. It was the visceral word of God that prompted a visceral response of repentance to God. Maybe a reason why we don't see God moving is because in our pretension, none of us are struck by the word of God. None of us are struck by the word of God. This was a king whose repentance became just as notorious as his sin. His repentance was just as notorious as his sin. What would it take for a revival to happen in this youth group, in this high school group right here, at our schools, in our communities, in our cities, in our state, in our world? What we need to first see is that we need to take God's word seriously. We need to take God's word seriously. Take a look again at verse 5. In verse 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. It was a notorious repentance and proper response to God's word that led to revival. I have a simple question for all of you. Do you guys take seriously the word of God? It's a simple question. Do you guys take seriously the word of God? I hear so many churchgoers who say that this message was good or that this message was bad or that this message was okay. But here is a pastor's and a preacher's take on it. Who cares if it's good? Seriously, who cares? Do you think the Ninevites thought Jonah's message was good? Do you think the Ninevites were sitting in their pews thinking, wow, this message is so good? Jonah literally preached a nine-word message in the English and a four-word message in the Hebrew. Jonah literally did the bare minimum. There was no grace. It was just all doom and gloom. He just said, it was an incomplete sentence. Yet 40 days and you will be overthrown. I think we're asking the wrong question if we're asking if a message was good or not. The real question that we need to be asking is, will I do what God is telling me to do? Am I compelled to change, not because this, this message was good, 
or because this message was bad. But am I compelled to change because God is actually speaking? That is the posture that every single one of us must have when a messenger of God opens up the word of God. The purpose of a sermon is not to amaze you. It is not to gather knowledge. It is not to dazzle you. It is not to blow your mind even. It isn't even necessarily for you to feel good or even feel convicted. The purpose of a sermon is for you to hear and to turn. To hear and to turn. To hear and to live. To hear and to be changed. Look at the end of verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. You know, I think so many of us at this church think that change is like some passive process where we wait for God to work in us. But change is not passive. Change requires just as much for us to work as well as for God to work in us. You know, as a pastor, um, preparing for this message uh, has been heavy on my heart and has been a personal challenge for me because the temptation that I face every time I finish preaching is to simply move on to the next sermon without processing it and letting my life be transformed by my own preaching. That is a temptation that I face every single week that I preach. And I suspect that the temptation for every one of you is similar. We can blame it on the fact that we go to a church that has a high emphasis on teaching and preaching, but the problem is not the preaching or teaching. The problem is us. We are the problem. I've mentioned this before, but I've known, I, I know so many people who know so much about Christian theology. They can recite the five points, six points, seven points of Calvinism in their sleep. They demonstrate correct Christian emotions even. You know, like sorrows and tears over their sin. They say the right Christian things. Like, I'm the worst of all sinners. No, but I'm the worst of all sinners. And so on and so on. But God sees what they're really like on the inside. God sees their abuse and their relationships with their wives and their girlfriends. He sees how they manipulate and control uh, what their girlfriends share or don't share. He sees how they think they're humble, but they're really not. He sees how they cling to their pornography. He sees how they still look for identity and the approval of others. He sees how they're unwilling to be honest about their struggles. He sees through their smiles and kindness. But they all know the book of Romans really well. They love to talk about God. They love to journal in their diaries and notebooks. They love to talk about how much they hate their sin and how much of a sinner they are. They love to talk about, how, about finding a good church. They love to listen to solid preaching. Oh, does this preaching have solid preaching? Or does this church have solid preaching? They love to talk about how sinful this world is. They love to navel gaze and talk about how much they hate their idols. They love to talk about how convicted they were from the message, but they just leave it at conviction. God doesn't see any change, especially when they say that they're the worst sinner. God doesn't see them doing anything about their corrupt hearts. He doesn't see them praying with proper motives. He doesn't see them do anything about their idolatry, even though they talk so much about their idolatry. He doesn't see them sacrificially loving the people at church, even though they serve. He doesn't see them repenting. Knowing the Bible, beloved. Knowing the Bible, going to church for a long time, doing Christian things are not the same as a lifelong obedience to Jesus. Knowing the Bible, going to church for a long time, doing Christian things are not the same as a lifelong obedience to Jesus. It's obviously not less than that, but if we really think that that's what, that's what Christian obedience to Jesus is, then I think we really have it wrong. So many of us are simply content at letting God's word go in one ear and out the other. So many of us do that. I'm guilty of that. Teaching and preaching and hearing preaching are all great, and it should arrest our hearts and transform us inside out. But if you just leave it at hearing, it's not enough. It really isn't. You can fool others with your knowledge. You can fool yourself even, but you can't fool God. Secondly, so first we, we saw that we need to take God's word seriously. Secondly, we need to act on God's word immediately. Take a look at verses 6 to 9 again. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, 
covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This king did not wait. Okay, he didn't procrastinate like we tend to do with our assignments, like I tend to do with sometimes sermon prep. He didn't put it off. He didn't try to self-justify. There were no excuses just because he was the king. He didn't try to find loopholes. There were no what-ifs or buts. What about you? Is there something that God is tugging on your heart today? Is there something that God is revealing to you in Scripture and you have yet to act on it? Maybe it's the call to forgive. Maybe it's the call to not be lazy. Maybe it's the call to, be, to, to obey, even when you don't feel like it. Maybe it's the call to be patient. And the list can go on and on and on. What part of God's revealed will do you still need to act on and obey? What makes this revival so compassionate? And I think, you know, just for the past 20 minutes or so, it's kind of like doom and gloom. What makes this revival so compassionate? What is so compassionate about this revival? Take a look at verse 4 again. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Why? Why only forty days? I don't know why. But the real question that we really should be asking is, why does God give Nineveh any time to repent at all? What makes this revival and this repentance so compassionate is that God gives a wicked and sinful people any time to repent at all. It should have been zero, not 40, not 39 or 38. And the fact that it wasn't more than 40 days also tells us that God's offer also does not last forever. But why? Why does God give Nineveh any time to repent at all? Why 40 days even? Take a look at the last half of verse 3. Um, now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Now, stop there. There's a footnote. Footnote number one. It says, literally in the Hebrew, in the, liter- in the Hebrew, it literally says, a great city to God. Nineveh wasn't only a great city. Nineveh was a great city to God. Nineveh was a city that God loved. Nineveh was a city that God loved. It was great, not in its size, but it was great in its importance to God. And if you, if you remember at the beginning of Jonah chapter 1, God calls Jonah to preach to Nineveh because their evil was so great that it reached the eyes of God. But in verse 3, here in chapter 3, God calls Jonah again to preach to Nineveh. Why? It's because in spite of all their great and wicked evil, God greatly loved Nineveh. In spite of all the great evil in this world, God still greatly loves this world. In spite of all the great evil that we see in our city, God still greatly loves this city. In spite of all the great evil that God sees in murderers, rapists, thieves, adulterers, God still greatly loves these sinners. In spite of all their great evil, God still loves your enemy. And in spite of all the great evil that God sees within you, God still loves you. God still loves you. Perhaps a better question to ask ourselves is, why has God given us any time to repent at all? Why has God given us any time to repent at all? For all of our hypocrisy, for all of our duplicity, for all of our self-deception, for all of our pretense, for all of our sin, the better question to ask is, why does God give us any time to repent at all? Why? It's for the very same reason why God gave Nineveh time to repent. It's because God loves us. It was because of God's love that Nineveh repented. Nineveh didn't repent to receive God's love. Nineveh repented because they had already received God's love. And it's because of God's love, it's because of it, that we do not presume on that love and on that kindness. And it's because of God's love that we act and take God's word seriously. 
And it's because of God's word, or God's love, that we act upon his word immediately. Do not see these verses as a mere history lesson. This is the blueprint for true and genuine revival. Beloved, God loves you as you are this evening, but God is not willing to let you stay as you are this evening. And so we see a compassionate restoration and compassionate revival. Third and finally, a compassionate mercy. A compassionate mercy. Take a look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God saves this entire nation, or this entire city, from king to peasant to cow. And the point here isn't the, in this verse isn't on the greatness of the Ninevites' faith or the strength of their repentance. Because we'll actually find later in the book of Nahum that Nineveh actually returns back to their evil ways, and God actually does judge them. Instead, the point in verse 10 is that a God who is intensely interested in even the salvation of the cattle must be interested in anyone and everyone. A God who is interested in a people who will not sustain their repentance for a long period of time is an extravagant God who will welcome anyone who will turn to him. Verse 10 reveals a wild and off-centered God who really does love the wicked in spite of their wickedness and foolishness. Now this all sounds great, but my question that I have had about this passage is how can God just forgive these murderers? Okay, remember, remember the Ninevites were murderers. Okay, they were, they were rapists. Okay, they skinned people alive. How can God just forgive these people and just relent of, their disaster, of his disaster upon them? How can God do that? How is that fair at all? If God is truly good, how can he just pardon what they did in the past? How is that right? How can a just and righteous God simply forgive murder, sexual assault, slander, violence, injustice, terrorism, arrogance, pride, jealousy, rage, selfishness? How can a just and righteous God forgive you? There was a solution, and this solution came at a great cost. And it was not at your expense. It was at God's. If God spared you, it's because God did not spare someone else. In order for God to have compassion on you, God's compassion comes with a costly price tag. God spared you because he did not spare his son. God spared you because he did not spare his son, his one and only son. And we, I think we hear of this Jesus so often, and yet our hearts are dull to him. That is the price of God's compassion for people like you and me. How far will God go to, to pursue someone? God slaughtered his son. He slaughtered him in order to save you from your wickedness, to rescue you from your pretension, to have compassion on you, to love you, God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still yet enemies of God, God died for us. Jesus died for us. It was no small thing for God to give up his son. You see, um, Justice and fairness, they're right. It's right. But mercy and forgiveness are better. Justice is absolutely right. right. When, when, when people wrong you, you are right to be offended and feel hurt by it. It's not wrong to be offended when people make fun of you or talk behind your back. And if you weren't upset, you would just actually be enabling sinful behavior. But what is compassion? What is mercy? What is forgiveness? Compassion is strength under control. It is not a flimsy feel-good or loose feeling toward people like, you know, I just like have compassion over you or like I pity you or something. Out of all the different ways that you can act towards someone, when you show compassion to someone, you are choosing to act contrary to what people deserve. 
That's why mercy is better. Not because it sounds better. Not because it's more accommodating. But because that is precisely how God has treated us. It would have been completely fair and just and right for God to punish us and to damn us to hell. We sinned against God. We have completely spat in God's face. We have completely completely rejected God, the, the infinite fountain of living water, the only source of true joy, happiness, and pleasure. And we have sought for it in grades. We've sought for it in the approval of others, in, in, in sex, in pornography, and in judging others. We prop ourselves up in order to look better than other, others, to sound better than others. We squandered opportunities that God calls us to steward. We gossip about people that we don't like. With our anger, we murder people in our hearts. We lie in order to look good in front of others. We act like children when God expects us to be mature. And it would have been completely fair. It would have been completely just. It would have been completely right for God to damn us to hell and for his wrath to be upon us for all of eternity. But that is not how God treats us. Instead of laying upon us the guilt, the shame, the punishment, and the wrath for our sins, God lays it upon his one and only son. Never has Jesus experienced such displeasure from God. The once beloved son of God becomes now the hated son of God. It was as if God tells Jesus on the cross, Son of man, why have you behaved like this? Why have you done this? You have cheated your neighbor. You have lied to your neighbor, made fun of your neighbor, stolen from your neighbor, lusted after your neighbor, gossiped behind your neighbor. You have hated your neighbor. You have cursed. You have robbed. You have overspent. You have disobeyed disobeyed and you have blasphemed. Oh, the, the duties you have ignored, the responsibilities that you have abandoned. You who ignored the poor or played the coward. You who mock your parents. Does the list never end? And on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he was personally responsible for every sin you have ever committed in your entire life. And he bears it there, even though he was perfectly sinless. And on the cross, God slaughtered Jesus. God should have slaughtered us. We should have been on that cross. And instead of you, God crushed his son. And he did something about human evil. He punished it in his son. If God spared you, it's because he did not spare his son. Jesus was the price of God's compassion. And I think uh, all of you guys are very familiar with this. And yet, while we know that there are no limits to God's love, no limits to his forgiveness and compassion for us, we put our limits on our love, forgiveness, and compassion on others. How can we be like that? How can professing Christians in good conscience, having been saved by the blood of Jesus, act like that? Putting limits on your love for others. So many of us look for loopholes and exceptions to the people that we don't want to love. But this person frustrates me. This person annoys me. This person is super whack. This person said this behind my back. But you don't know what it's like. So many of us are just like that lawyer that, we, lawyer that we see in Luke 10 who asks Jesus, but Lord, who really is my neighbor? So many of us are asking the wrong question. So many of us are asking, God, when can I not love my neighbor? God, can you show me a list of the people whom I don't have to show compassion to? And you know, sometimes it's the wisest and most understanding person who does not understand the heart of God at all. Sometimes it's the most theologically astute, the most polished Christian, the person who is most familiar with Jesus, the person who knows all the right things, who is the most apathetic, who is the most apathetic to the simplest commands of God. If Jonah actually loved God and lived out neighbor love, I wonder how different his world would have been. If genuine Christians who are saved by God and actually love him lived out neighbor love, I wonder how different our world would be. You know, it's been said that Christians are God's final apologetic, God's final proof that Jesus really died for sinners. You know, the the best argument for Christianity is Christians, their love, 
their patience, their kindness, their truth, their joy, their peace, their compassion, their, their certainty, their wholeness, their unity. But on the other hand, at the same time, the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians, self-professing Christians who are joyless in their service. When they are self-righteous and smug in their attitude and worship, when they are compassionless and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. If Jesus really is the one whom we love and worship, we of all people should be the most compassionate people on planet Earth. If our neighbors, our friends, perhaps even our coworkers, were to look at our lives, I wonder what they would say. I really wonder what they would say. Man, those Christians really keep to themselves. Man, those Christians really love their theology. Man, those Christians really love their Christian conferences. They love their celebrity pastors. They love and are really arrogant and self-righteous. Man, those Christians are really unforgiving. Or would they say, I don't think I've met a more compassionate people than Christians. If Jesus was the price of God's compassion, then compassion needs to be the mark of God's people. It needs to be. It is not a preference. It is a must. People who show no compassion do not know the compassion of God. People who show no compassion do not know the compassion of God. And I believe that this is one of the glaring blemishes of the church of Jesus Christ today. And yet, even in, our, in spite of our failure, God gives more grace. He gives more grace. This is the God of grace, the God of second chances, thirds, fourths, fifths, tenths. How can we not love this God? And how can we not be filled with compassion for the people God has compassion over? This is the God who is excessive and extravagant in his compassion. This is the God who is far too compassionate. Let's pray. Father, I pray just a simple prayer that you would strip away all of our spiritual pretense, all of our duplicity. God, you know our hearts. And so God, we repent. We confess to you terrible attitudes. We confess to you self-righteous and smug Christian living, which really isn't Christian at all. Well, God, we know that we need grace. And we thank you that you have afforded that to us in your son. And so, Father, I pray that for every look that we have at our sin, at our lack of compassion, at our self-righteousness, that we would take 10 looks at Jesus and that would change our lives. Father, we thank you. We ask us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.